invite you to open your Bibles this evening. That's the book that we are going to study from as we routinely do so. As members of the Lord's Church, we appreciate our Bibles. We appreciate God's Word and its power to transform us. And if you'd like to open to 1 Peter chapter 5, where we're going to spend just a couple of moments at the outset of our study together this evening. Thank you for being here. As our brother has already pointed out, we are very uh, fortunate and blessed to have lots of visitors with us uh, on a busy uh, time of, in a busy time of the year, and we are grateful for your presence. When you get to know someone, you get to know the good things about them, and you get to know maybe some of the not-so-good things about them. Maybe it's your new coworker, it's your new supervisor, maybe it's your new subordinate. Uh, maybe it's a new family member that you've married into the family, and you're just now getting to know some of the cousins and the in-laws, and the case may be you're getting to know some of the good things and maybe some of the not-so-great things. When it comes to getting to know our our adversary, there's nothing good about him to know. So we're done with that portion of the study. We are, however, supposed to know everything about him as much as we possibly can in order to effectively fight against Satan because he is a real and he is a formidable enemy. And so we want to get to know Satan tonight. You may say, well, I didn't come to learn about Satan. I came to learn about Jesus. Well, go back to Matthew chapter 4, and you'll see that early on in the life of Jesus, who did he interact with? One of the first and foremost individuals or uh, angelic or spiritual beings, whatever he may be, is Satan there in Matthew chapter 4 after his baptism in Matthew chapter 3. And so we would be naive to think that we are not going to have an enemy with whom we have to encounter and we go to war with. We are engaged in a war, as one of our brothers said a few weeks back, this is indeed a battleground and not a playground. This is a war in which we are engaged. And as the preacher said years ago, Satan will destroy you more than you can imagine, will keep you longer than you want to stay, and take you further into the blackness than you would ever want to go. And he will destroy you, and he is bent on destroying you, your children, your families, your loved ones, the church, you name it. He wants to destroy anything that is good and anything that is wholesome. And so I want us to establish three reasons why this particular subject uh, is so valuable in just a moment, and then come away with three observations. But I want to start with why this study matters. And I think I'm broadly speaking to a group of individuals who say, yes, it does matter, this particular study. But just in case someone is maybe newer to the faith, or maybe you share this with someone who is newer in the faith, they may say, well, why do we need to understand Satan if he's the bad? guy so very much. Let me first of all state that among the reasons why this matters is we need to scout out our opponent. Now, uh, sports analogies are always a difficult trick for preachers. Uh, I don't want to start a, a, a war within the congregation among one team to another team, and so we're not going to talk about teams or about uh, those with whom you are the most affectionate with. But take whatever sport you like. It can be basketball, it can be football, it can be baseball or soccer or whatever the case may be. Uh, and pick whatever team, whether it be a high school team or a college team or a professional team. And I can guarantee you 
that especially with the advent of technology today and how there is a camera going at all times in every place, and so nothing is secret anymore, that when an offense is run, the coach of the defensive team says, I've seen this offense before 100 times, having maybe never seen that team before in person. And the reason is, is because that coach has scouted out his or her opponent. The quarterback knows all the different offenses that he's going to run, and his defensive teammates know what the other quarterback is going to run. And there are penalties that are involved with knowing certain things about other teams at the professional level. But the point that I'm trying to make is it would be naive for a team to go into battle on the football field and say, well, we're just going to wing it and see what happens with our opponent throwing at us. Back in the olden days, this may come as a surprise to those of you that weren't born, uh, that that were born in this century and beyond. But there was a time when coaches would send these black things called videotapes, VHS cassettes, to one another, and they would share them across town so that you would know what the different teams are going to do. We need to scout out our opponent, and God's Word has provided us with the ability to do so. And in fact, in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, the verse that we're going to kind of use as our launching point this evening, it says, be sober, or you may have self-controlled or serious-minded. He says, be sober. And then he says, be vigilant or watchful or aware. And the reason is because your adversary, an adversary is a strong word. I don't know that I have very many adversaries. I have a few in this world. Someone once said, if as a Christian, you don't have someone that doesn't dislike you, you may not have done your job well enough. Uh, And I don't mean that, that we want people to not like us, but some people are not going to like us and respond well to the truth. But this is a strong word. He is the adversary, the devil, and what does he do? He walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And so what are we to do? We are to resist him, being steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. And so the goal, simply put, of this particular sermon is to examine these three aspects about Satan, who Satan is, what is his identity. And I would be the kind of person and am the kind of person that I think that reminders like this from time to time are important. And so I've actually talked about Satan before from this pulpit, but I wanted to revisit from a different angle in the course of our study this evening. And then I want us to walk away with three very practical, pragmatic lessons for everyday living. Number one, I want us to appreciate in our list of three things about Satan, and that is that Satan is a liar. He is a deceiver from the very beginning. You know, those are fighting words. All of us have probably had someone say to us, whether it be truthful or not, and hopefully it's not truthful, but they were upset with us, so you're lying to me. And those words kind of hurt when someone says, you, you're a liar. That's like, no, don't say that. Maybe, maybe you misunderstood, but you're a liar. Satan is a liar. He lies to us all the time about all kinds of things. And he's lied to each of us And I know from passages like Romans chapter 3, as much as we don't like to read chapter 3, verse 23, the verse that we memorize, we have all 
listened to his lies. I know that. And I have too. Because we are human beings who have done wrong in God's sight. You go back to the very beginning, and I always in a sermon when I think about Satan as being deceiver, think about Genesis chapter 3 or in a study, think about Genesis chapter 3, where in Genesis chapter 2, God had said to Adam and to Eve in the garden, he says, I want you to explore. I want you to eat whatever you want to eat, but there's one tree that I do not want you to eat of. And in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And what does Satan do? He comes directly back to that in Genesis chapter 3, which tells me that Satan is a very good student of God's word. He cannot be a better student than you or me, but he knows God's word. In fact, in Matthew chapter 4, he goes to Jesus on separate occasions with God's word saying, this is what's been written, but you, or this is what's been said. And Jesus responds, have you not also read or have you not read or it is written? And he fights back with scripture. After all, it is our sword. It is the weapon that we wield in service to our king. But the fact of the matter is, is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 4, he says, you shall not surely die. It won't happen. You won't die. And Satan deceived Eve and Adam on that occasion. Jesus, in John chapter 8 and verse 44, calls Satan the father of all lies and liars. When you have been deceived by a coworker, when someone has bold-faced lied to your face and it hurts because you thought they were your friend, it goes back to Satan himself. That is not from God. That is from Satan because he is the father of all lies. I want to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 to a passage that I think a study on this particular subject would be incomplete without. And I want to read just three or four verses here very quickly and then make a couple of quick observations here in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We just recently concluded this particular study and Jason did a good job of taking us through the book of 2 Corinthians. But Paul says near the end of the letter, as he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, oh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly, and indeed you do bear with me. For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. Incidentally, there's a, there's, there's a subject there that we might explore sometime. What does it mean to be godly jealous? Because 99% of the time, whenever we use the concept of jealousy or reference it, it's always negative. But Paul says, I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. So maybe that's, put that in your mind and maybe we'll come back to that at some point. For I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. That gives us a little bit of commentary on where he's going there, by the way, I think. He says, but I'm afraid, lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity or the purity that is in Christ. For if he comes, or for he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. Paul's concerned by way of the Holy Spirit to the Corinthians is you've made some serious headway in your spiritual walk, and you have made some significant improvements. And in fact, you could argue that half of Second Corinthians is in some ways a, a, a commendation 
with some caveats as to how they dealt with the likely issue of 1 Corinthians chapter 5 as outlined in the previous uh, book. But he says, I don't want you to be guilty of being deceived in the way that Eve was deceived. And so note if he would... uh, just two things. First of all, in verse three, in the New King James Version, it uses the craftiness of Satan. When someone is crafty, it's someone who is not good at making cards or designing decoupage. See, I, I know certain things. Some of you know what decoupage, I don't even know what decoupage is. I just know something that Wendy does. And some of you ladies do. And men may do too. I don't, that's fine too. Uh, but I don't know what it is. But it's something crafty. Satan does not do crafts. He doesn't sit in his craft room and and do nice things for nice people. He deceives and finds ways to trip you and me up. And then in the subsequent verse, it says that he is different and he is deceptive. He's of a different gospel, a different spirit, of another or deceptive way of thinking. Drop down to verse 14. No wonder, and we're not going to take the time to read all of 2 Corinthians chapter 11 because that's not really the scope of our study, but drop down to verse 14. No wonder Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. He's like a chameleon in my mind. That's my, 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 my mind goes to the chameleon. Ability to change your colors, ability to blend in. You see sometimes uh, on some of these National Geographic uh, shows, uh, animals in the ocean that are able to blend in with the sand and you can't see them and or blend in with the rocks and you cannot see them. And that's very frightening when you're gardening in certain places in the country where you might run across some sort of a critter that otherwise could harm you. Satan is a critter that can harm you. And he can do more than bite your hand or more than give you some sort of an infection or send you to the emergency room looking for some sort of anti-venom. He will destroy you for eternity. And that's what he wants. And he can do so in ways that are surprising to us. More on that at the close of our study together this evening. And let me suggest to you this. Satan does not advertise his tricky, deceptive ways. He's very subtle about it. And Satan is not long-suffering in patience, but he's patient, it seems to me, in that he says, I I may not get you today, but I can get you maybe tomorrow. Because you're strong today, but you're only as strong as you are today because tomorrow may be a weak point in your life. Which brings us to the second observation about Satan, and that is he knows your weaknesses. And your weaknesses are not my weaknesses. And everybody has their own weaknesses. And this is admittedly a very uncomfortable part of the study for anybody who preaches and anybody who listens, because your mind is already going to your weaknesses. And mine is going to mine. It it may be a certain activity. It may be a certain drink. It may be a certain relationship. It may be a certain type of talking. It may be a certain interaction that you have with people. It may be something that you look at. It may be something that you think about. But each of you are now processing in your minds what your weaknesses are. And you know what they are. By the way, um, the blessings that we have as Christians... God has never, 
asked us to write all that out for the rest of the world to see. You ever think about that? He's never asked you to say to the whole world, here's every problem I've ever had and problem that I have spiritually. Now he knows us. And we might try to deceive God and say, well, I hope God doesn't know about this. He knows everything. And someone once said, he actually knows us better than we know ourselves. Now, I don't believe that Satan is um, omnipotent or omniscient. I don't believe that. I think that would put him on par with God. We could debate that and talk about that. And there may be, I, I don't know exactly how much he knows and how he knows what he knows. But he does have power. Go back to the... 2022 series on angels, and one of the things that I pointed out is that Satan is very knowledgeable, and he knows certain things. But not only does he know what our weaknesses are, but he knows where our weakest moments transpire. Consider, if you would, some examples, and one of those we talked about just a couple of moments ago. In Matthew chapter 4, we won't take the time to read those dozen verses or so, but Jesus has this so-called spiritual high, this pinnacle moment where he is baptized and the spirit descends and the voice of the father uh, uh, exudes this praise. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Nothing's gonna stop me now. And then verse one of chapter four where he is led, and there's a difference in the wording in in Luke's version versus Matthew's wording, but it's the idea that God is going to allow him to go through a challenge because Hebrews chapter 5 says that he's going to sympathize with our weaknesses and our low points, and he has to know what it's like to go through temptation. I mean, wouldn't it be unfair if you've, you've already thought about your unpleasant blank, or a series of blanks. And, I, and I'm sorry to bring those things to your mind, but they are always on our minds as Christians because we want to fight our weaknesses and fight the areas where we need help. But you've thought about that. And when you go to God in prayer sometime in the next 48 hours and say, please help me to continue to deal with my temptation to blank. What if God were to say, I just don't understand where you're coming from. How can that be an issue for you? Because Jesus was tempted in all points, even as we are. I don't know the depth of that. I can't explain that fully, but I believe it. And I believe that we have a high priest who, as we'll study in the book of Hebrews, can indeed sympathize with all of our weaknesses and challenges. But here is Jesus, 40 days without eating and drinking, or 40 days without eating, And uh, here he is in a place of physical and emotional and mental vulnerability. And Satan comes to him and he says, want something to eat? We joke about this sometimes, especially those of us that enjoy uh, eating, which is most of us as Americans, uh, and say, I don't know that I could go 40 hours. We can we're engineered by God to, to go longer. But he comes right to the, the weakest point or the potential weakest point. And then he goes to those three things that we actually prayed about this morning. The pride of life, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, 
as outlined in 1 John chapter 2. And Jesus responds by saying, I'm not going to do it because I'm not going to, to broadly paraphrase Matthew chapter 4, disappoint my God and do what is wrong. Turn over, if you would, just very quickly. We don't have the time to spend more than just a minute or two on this, but 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1 through 5, principles regarding marriage and marriage fidelity. And this is something that is important for those of you that are younger who perhaps in the next couple of years will get married or the next decade will get married. This is important for those of us who are married, and this is important for those who've been married for many, many decades, longer than perhaps some of us are even alive. He says, concerning the things of which you wrote to me. So this was a question or an issue that they were dealing with. He says, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And then why does this matter so much, Paul? Why are you laying out these principles which should, with an asterisk next to it, be self-explanatory. He says, do not deprive one another except for consent with time, before time, that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and then come together again so that this doesn't happen. Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. When it comes to these issues of relationships between man and woman, God understands that because he instilled that in us. You understand that because you are a human being and you know who else understands that very well? Satan. And he understands that that's an issue that he can use to drive a wedge into relationships between husbands and wives. Ananias and Sapphira come to mind in Acts chapter 5 with their greed and with their lust for more. All three of these prove how much Satan knew and how much Satan knows. And that should be frightening to us. Not frightening in the sense that we throw up our hands and run around in a sense of panic, but frightening that Satan knows us and he knows whether it is something that would be sexually immoral or something that is financially uh, appealing, he knows what it is that will get you to react. And he knows the same for me. Which brings us to the third and the final component of our study together before we end with some applications, and that is Satan is ruthless. And I chose that simple but yet powerful word, purposely because he's not just, uh, I want to I punch you in the nose and walk away. He's ruthless. He wants your personal spiritual destruction. And the frightening thing about this is that God wants 100% of you. Satan will take just a small percentage of you. Think about that. 
God demands everything of you, your heart, your mind, your soul, your body, every aspect of who you are, God says, I want that. And when we give that to him, things work out splendidly, both in this life, even in spite of the challenges that may come as a result of our faithful service to him, but certainly in eternity. Satan says, why don't you just serve God maybe a fourth of the time and give me the other three-fourths, or better yet, let's split it evenly in half or less. Make no mistake about it, Satan is out to destroy you and he's out to destroy me. And so when we go back to that verse that we used at the outset of our study together uh, this evening, it is something that requires us to deal with Satan. We need three things, it seems to me, to really understand the ruthlessness of Satan. One is to appreciate soberness and sober-mindedness. 99 out of 100 times when we use the word sober, we're using it in, in, in the terms of drinking versus not drinking because that's the, that's the culture in which we live. We are using that term certainly, uh, going back to Sam Zonka's very good sermon uh, about four weeks ago to talk about that. But we are also saying regardless of the fact that, you know, uh, I don't drink, I still need to be sober-minded. And I could be uh, of a poor mindset in the way that I uh, govern myself. In Luke chapter 21 and in verse 3, he says, Truly, I say to you that the poor widow has put in more than all. This is the widow's two mites. For out of her abundance, he put in offerings for God. And she out of poverty put in all the livelihood that she had. Here's a woman who doesn't have a lot, but she has something to give. And it seems to me that that's one of the maybe less uh, apparent or more obscure signs of soberness. I'm going to do what I can and be faithful to my God. Secondly, vigilance. What does it mean to be vigilant? Well, it's the word that we get the word vigilante from, which usually has a bad connotation to it. Uh, vigilance is a good thing. And it goes back to the point that I made in the book of Ezekiel just last Sunday morning in talking about shepherds in the local church. Elders are supposed to be vigilant and watch carefully. And thirdly, we've got to appreciate the idea that we see Satan as our adversary. Literally anti-law. Satan knows God's law, and he is our adversary in trying to get us to disobey this law. Now, we must resist Satan because he will not give up easily. However, the, the, the asterisk there is on purpose because make sure that we appreciate James 4 verse 7, where the text says that if we stand strong against him, he will flee. I don't think that means he flees forever. In fact, I'm pretty sure that doesn't mean that. I wish that were the case. I wish that you beat Satan once and say, I've got him defeated, and then he's never coming back again. But that's not the way it works. But he will leave you for a season. He'll leave you for a period of time. And the more we give in to Satan, the easier it is for him to get us to give in in the future, vice versa. The more we resist him, and say, I'm just not going to go down that road. I'm not going to make that choice. I'm not going to do that thing. The easier it is to do that same action or to not do that same action 
whatever the case may be, going forward into the future. Well, let me conclude with this, and that is just some simple and basic lessons for everyday living. And these are things that are sober-minded and things that uh, may be offensive to those in the world. But number one is we need to appreciate that Satan doesn't have to get you to do something that is, quote, really wrong. And I put that in quotes, and I put that in capital letters with a capital R and a capital W for a particular purpose. We understand that wrong is wrong is wrong is wrong. We understand that. We understand that in Revelation 21, where there's that list, or 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where there's another list of individuals that will not inherit the kingdom of God, of people who will be disobedient to God, are all kinds of different types of sin. But let's face it, we can rationalize the fact that I didn't do really wrong in a world that says, don't be so hard on yourself. It wasn't that bad what you did. Well, we cannot be involved in rationalizing our lives based on what the world says is really good or really bad or partially good or partially bad. Even some sin is enough sin to please Satan. Again, he says, I'm willing to take 20% of your life. You can give 80% of your life to God and read your Bible and sit on the pew and write a check and sing the songs and do those things. I just want a portion of your life, Satan says. We cannot allow our adversary, the one who is opposed to the law, to trick us, to deceive us into evaluating ourselves in respect to others. And that is so easy to do. And I appreciate the point that David made this morning that I had never really thought of before in 40-some years from Matthew chapter 20, the idea that we cannot and should not be thinking about, well, I've been doing this for 23 years, and this person's only been doing it for three years, so I've got some credibility or some spiritual capital. Nonsense, according to Matthew chapter 20. And I appreciate the point that David made. Now, we appreciate 23 years of service, but we appreciate three days of service. And if you've been a Christian for a month versus someone who's been a Christian for 40 years, we are all valuable to our Lord. And we are all valuable to this church and to the work of his kingdom. Number two, Satan doesn't have to get you to do wrong, get you to do wrong as long as he can stop you from doing what is right. Turn over, if you would, to Galatians chapter 6, a a well-worn passage in your Bibles, but one that we need to appreciate, and it has kind of a James-esque kind of tone to it, where James says, he who knows to do good and does not do it to him, he says, if you have the opportunity to do good and you don't do so, kind of a James kind of concept. But certainly Paul deals with this when he says, I want you to bear one another's burdens and I want you to fulfill the law of Christ. And then he goes on to describe what that looks like over the next four to six verses. And then he says in verse six, let him who has taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Verse nine, do not grow weary while doing good for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So someone can say, I, I, 
in, in, in light of Luke chapter 12 or other passages, look at all the things that I don't do and look at the things that I do in, in response to Jesus. Jesus, in response to that man, says, what does the law say? And he just spouts off what the law says. And he says, all these things I have kept from my youth. Or we could flip that around. All these things I have not done from my youth. I, I've, I've, I've not lied. I don't use bad language. We talked about that in one of our songs tonight. I don't, I don't do those kinds of things. Maybe, maybe 20 years ago I did, but not anymore because I've changed my ways. Good. But are you doing good? Are you in the work of trying to not grow weary while doing good? And as you have opportunity, do good to all. By the way, my understanding of Galatians chapter 6 is not if you see an opportunity come your way, reluctantly step into help, but look for opportunities to assist and make those opportunities valuable to yourself. And then thirdly and finally, I want us to appreciate this, and that is Satan is talented. I, I want to give Satan some credit here. I'm being somewhat joking here. But he deserves a, a, a medal for his talent, for his cunningness, for his craftiness. He's good at what he does. And if you say otherwise, you aren't familiar with Satan in a real uh, way. We've got to exercise caution in accepting advice from others. I remember growing up with a family of seven uh, and the youngest of the five children, how many times um, I would hear conversations with my older siblings when they would say to my parents, and I would be watching, watching what, you know, I want to see what's going to happen, who's going to get in trouble next. There's a bunch of us, so a lot of pings going around. Um, and uh, say, well, so-and-so said it was okay to do this. And then the parents would say, well, who are these so-and-so? Which is always a good question because sometimes it's imaginary so-and-sos. But when you identify who these people are, well, are they approaching it from a biblical point of view, from a spiritual point of view? And oftentimes, 99 out of 100 times, no, it's a friend or some parents of friends who are not members of the church or individuals who have a worldly mindset. And that takes us back to our scripture reading, which we're not going to reread in 1 John chapter 4, but it says, beloved, test the spirits. And the whole point there, at least in a broad sense for what we're trying to illustrate tonight is just be careful who you get your advice from. And even a Christian can steer you wrong, unfortunately. And so always go back to God's word. But we need to, in the words of Solomon, understand that iron sharpens iron and that we can help one another in that. This is especially the case with issues of what I would call or what the world calls moral relativity. Even though the Bible says it's wrong, society says it's okay. And I can make a list of probably 30, and with your assistance, we could double that to 60. I've listed just three kind of hot topic issues. What about same-sex marriage? Now, the world says, no big deal, not a problem, not an issue. And I said this maybe six months ago from this pulpit, nine months ago, whatever the case may be. And, and it does concern me, although I'm a, I, I got to admit, I can go just a little bit off my script here. I'm a little less worried in the last seven days than I was seven days before, if you watch the news. I don't watch a lot of news, but I do, I do read the news. I do read. 
I, I look at the pictures at least. I can't read very well. But in the last seven days, I've gotten a little more uh, comfortable with the notion that if someone were to come to me and say, I would like you to perform my ceremony to individuals of the same gender, I got to admit, I'm full, full transparency. I've been a little bit nervous about that question happening over the last few years. Now, it's like a one in a billion chance because people know that they're not going to probably get very far. But what if someone did just to press the issue? And then I end up either with a fine or my name is now attached to a famous court case. I really would rather not be that famous, to be honest with you. Because the answer is no, I'm not doing that, right? Okay, and I know I would have 170 people supporting me and then thousands more across the country, but I, I, that's made me a little bit nervous over the years. So I feel a little bit better given the court case that came out just a few days ago, if you're familiar with what that was about. But society says no big deal. Satan says no big deal. And you are going to be made to think that you are backward thinking, that you are bigoted, and that you are short-minded for your belief on this issue. And many of you have already had that experience in your professional uh, environments where you have had to say, I cannot participate in that shower. I cannot be involved in that activity. And I'm not going to attend that event. And you did so with courtesy and with kindness, I'm sure. But I've talked to some of you who've been in that situation. What about, I'm going to use the fancy word that is used. Now, the Bible does not use the word cohabitation, but that's the fancy word that is used. The Bible uses the word sexual immorality or fornication before marriage. Incidentally, there was a study that came out a couple of decades ago uh, that I read maybe 15 years ago that showed statistically that couples that spend their lives together before they're married, giving it a test run, so to speak, for uh, six months or 12 months or, or whatever the case may be, and saying, we're going to live together and see how we gel, uh, and then we'll get married, have a greater propensity for divorce and failure in their marriage than those that don't. That's a study by non-religious people. I thought that was interesting. So God apparently knows what he is doing. That is not politically correct as well to say that. And who are you to judge me for my choices and for my decisions? What about just small white lies or just a little bit of gossip or just not really telling the whole truth? Well, there's no such thing as small white lies. There's just lies, right? Satan is not the father of the big lies. He's the father of lies. That's what the scripture has taught us. And we've got to understand who Satan is, what he is about, and as we said at the outset, he'll destroy you far more than you can imagine. He will keep you more than you are willing to stay, and he will take you further than you want to go. We need to get to know Satan. And I hope that this has not been a, uh, I, I do hope it's been a sobering study I hope that it's one that causes you to think and causes you to ponder. And I hope also that if you are not right with God because you are trying to get closer to Satan, you'll say tonight, enough is enough. I don't want to be a part of 
of, of his work. I want to be a part of his work. And there's a difference. And so we hope that we can help you and encourage you in that process. As David said this morning, as we say tonight, and as we say on a routine basis, there are some who are not Christians, some who've never been baptized for the remission of their sins. And we hope that you'll make a choice to say, I want to begin a faithful life of service to my God by being baptized this very evening. We'll do so in, in the next few minutes. We'll do so later tonight. We'll do so tomorrow morning at 3.45 a.m. if that's the choice you make. But please do so sooner than later while you still have the time and are guaranteed an opportunity. If you want to make your life right with God, as a child of God, you're not living correctly and you need to make some sort of uh, uh, course correction. Say, I, I've gotten too close to Satan. Some of those things you've talked about, maybe not specifically, but they've triggered some things in my mind that, yeah, I need to change the way that I'm approaching my life. And if we can help you in that, we'd welcome the opportunity. Let us know while we stand, while we sing.